turn your Bibles again to the 51st song of the Psalter. We're doing our approach to worship a little bit different today. The sermon will come to you in three parts, woven in with the music. Uh, just make sure you're staying awake. The first time we did this, and we don't do it all that often, one of our uh, staff children, a child of a staff member, was pretty young, and I got there the third time. He looked at his mother and said, again? <laughs> You're not hearing three sermons, it's one sermon in three parts, so you may feel like again in a minute, but here we, here we go, Psalm 51. This time of year, we've just passed the season of fired basketball coaches. I looked it up, there were 50 changes in college men's basketball, a few of those retirements, but most of those replacements. And women's basketball, there were 30 such changes, a few retirements, but mostly replacements. The crowd is fickle, are they not? You know, the bottom line is two teams tip off and at the end there cannot be a tie. There's going to be one team that loses and thus, there will always be some losing coaches. Everybody can't win. It's a statistical impossibility. But we've been trained, we've been reared to want to be winners. But winners, winners don't always learn. Sometimes there's some real benefits to losing. I found the longest losing streaks. A losing streak is defined as an uninterrupted string of contests, whether games or matches lost by a team. Division I football, the Northwestern Wildcats lost 34 games in a row. That losing streak lasted from 1979 to 1982. They also lost nine bowl games in a row. I found another NCAA team, a team that lost, are you ready, 80 games in a row. Can you imagine suiting up and getting the band ready and you've lost 80 games in a row? This lasted from 1989 to 1998, nearly a decade of defeat. It's the Prairie View A&M Panthers, nine years, 80 games without a single victory. In women's basketball, it's the Long Island Blackbirds. They're most notable for their losing 58 games in a row. The Long Island Blackbirds lost 58 games in a row. That was 1986 to 1989. I think it's the mascot name, Long Island Blackbirds. I would go with Killer Crows or something like that or Rowdy Ravens. That's Alfred Hitchcock. That's scary, but just Blackbirds, nobody's scared of that. You get the point. While there are some teams that go on really long winning streaks, the math has to be balanced. There are also equally teams that go on really long losing streaks. Even got a symbol in our culture. If you want to call somebody a loser, we know what symbol that makes someone upset to indicate they're not a winner in our culture. The late pastor Frank Pollard asked about reunions at his old alma mater. He said, all the guys are winners when we get together. One guy actually won a Heisman Trophy and he has been a winner ever since. 
He said another guy was an All-American in baseball. He played in the World Series that year and was Rookie of the Year. He said there was another All-American football player. There's the president of a large utility company. And there are a lot of millionaires in the real estate business in his class at the high school reunion. He said, to complete, be completely honest, every time I get together with those guys, I'm disappointed. There is no depth to their company with each other. It's just one upmanship between one ego and the other ego. Man, let me show you how I'm bigger than you are. Let me show you how I've come through, how I've become big time. You get the feeling, he says, that they actually have a disdain for folks who aren't where they are. There's something just not comfortable. There's something not soul-soothing about always being in the presence of winners. Well, in Psalm 51, we come to the depth of David. He's not a winner. Oh, he had been a winner before. For sure he had been a winner before. He had defeated Goliath and he had been paraded through the city and received all the accolades well, Saul hath slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. Even as a little red-headed boy, he was anointed king. David knew what it was like to win, win, win. But not today. David, all of a sudden, and this song in the Psalter, all of a sudden, David is a loser. Tradition ascribes this song to his sin with Bathsheba. He had become guilty of a whole chain of vices, had he not? Lust led to adultery. Adultery led to deception. Deception led to murder. In trying to cover his tracks, he simply dug the pit all the deeper. And finally, God confronted him through Nathan the prophet when the prophet said to him, David, you are the sinner. David, you're the wicked man. So here we come in Psalm 51 to David's deep, prayerful, agonizing response to his catastrophe. Well, look at Psalm 51 with me. Look at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Verse 7. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean, and wash me, and I shall be brighter than snow. Verse 8. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Verse 10, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Verse 14, deliver me from my blood guiltiness. Do you think those words are words that could have been penned by someone who's always winning? Or someone who's never suffered a loss? No, 
winners don't have the depth of life that this brokenness brings in the life of the king. I've never been a big fan of celebrity religion. You see a lot of it in churches where you parade stars and beauty queens across the platforms and pulpits of America in order to impress everybody that this winner has teamed up with God. And you can be a winner too if you team up with God. Well, sure, he believes in God. Look how God has blessed him. But that's what the devil said of Job, is it not? I think that what people really want to know is if we, you and me, when we get crushed, when we fall down, when we don't make the number one team or lineup, when we don't get the Heisman Trophy, when we don't get to be the millionaire, when we don't get to do any of those things, are we still faithful in following God? In fact, I've discovered in life that those who suffer to those who lose sometimes, no, most of the time, are the greatest bearers of faith. Well, one of the benefits of losing is when we lose, it simplifies and clarifies life. When we lose, it simplifies and clarifies life. We find ourselves in a, a state of health, wealth, and prosperity. We find ourselves always a winner. We're sort of like a, a horse on the racetrack, and we have blinders on, and we can only see in one direction, and we think all the world is about us, and then suffering. The blinders fall off, and we realize there's a whole world around us that we have been blinded to. We're totally unaware as a winner sometimes of the reality around us. When we lose, it simplifies and clarifies life. Has the COVID crisis created clarity about what's important to you? You let a challenging sickness sift us. You let a financial hardship strike us. You let marital bliss become marital blunder. We find ourselves shaken down to the very foundation of life. It's simplified then, isn't it? It's clarified. I'm not wishing it on you, and I'm not wishing suffering on me. But I can tell you, there are some real benefits to hard times. The high school buddy who never did take God seriously until trouble hit bragging about a, a football scholarship to a Big Ten school there at Michigan. Finally, he got slammed on the five-yard line and two surgeries and three sideline seasons later. He did some serious thinking. Life's short. Where have my priorities been? What have I put first place in my life, he asked. Well, today he's still in football, I'm happy to tell you, but he's coaching the Tiny Tornadoes Pee Wee League after work. His priorities are straighter. His world is clarified, simplified. And Bible study and prayer get a large chunk of his time. Yes, sometimes we know God a lot better through suffering. It's a, it's a curiosity that it works that way, but say there's a couple down the street and they tend to be just a little materialistic. 
Then last year he lost his job and, well, they prayed harder and they got by with less. They made adjustments in their life. They learned some lessons and well, they found that family, all of a sudden family is more important than possessions. And community college is actually a great choice for their daughter to begin who thought she was Princeton bound. God took care of them while they got back on their feet, but they learned some lessons of clarifying and sympathizing through their hardship. Sometimes we discover God's hand in our heartbreak. It's a peculiarity. A 26-year-old young man is just given back his engagement ring by a girlfriend of three years. The wedding was just months away, and he sits on his dresser as a monument to his failure and love. He dealt with that grief by pouring himself into a kid boy neighbor two houses down the street who never knew his father. He takes him to the stables on weekends and he t- teaches the little boy to ride horseback. It made a spurned man grow up. He learned his own problems really were super small. You show me this morning someone who's facing a tragedy, and I'll show you someone who has learned to prioritize things that once were absolutely paramount and so important are now absolutely trivial. Those people in your life that you let rob you of joy, they're not as important anymore. The one you worried about and thought about and gave rent-free space in your head You've learned to clarify, to simplify, and move on. You arrive from suffering with a a new set of priorities. One of the benefits of losing is that it simplifies and clarifies life. Not only does losing bring about clarifying and simplifying, but it brings about purifying. That's what's happening to David here, isn't it? When you have victory after victory in life, you begin to think somehow you're doing it on your own, that God's not necessary for you, that you yourself are somehow self-sufficient. You don't realize how fragile and frail and weak you really are. You begin to think that you're something really amazing or something really special. You don't really learn to lean on God all that much. Then when a loss comes, and friend, it will come, there's purifying. David was king, and David was wealthy. David was a warrior, and David cries out, Oh God, have mercy upon me according to your loving kindness. Cleanse me from my iniquity and forgive my sin. I acknowledge my sin, and my sin is ever before me. Wash me, and I will be clean. Forgive me, and I will be right. Cleanse me with hyssop. What he's saying is, I need to be purified. Sometimes when life gets real, It's purifying for us. Look at verses 3 and 4. I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you, and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. You may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Calls David the loser in this song. He sees the reality of his sin. Sometimes when we lose, 
is purifying. We have a tendency sometimes to blame, to blame everyone and everything but ourselves. But finally, David in this law says, I did it. I'm guilty. I sinned, oh God. Saying I'm the one. I'm the sinner. Is really the first and only step to healing and recovery. His consciousness is dominated by his guilt. My sin is always before me. He's not sleeping at night. He's worried. Look at verse 10. He says, purify. Verse 7, he says, purify me. Verse 10, he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. You go the winner's circle. Well, you're around a lot of winners. You'll find there is no unity. No real unity in the winner's circle. In the circle of winners, there's only the game of one-upmanship, and my win is bigger than your win, and I'm better than you are. Everybody is turned inward. There's not any real relationship or unity there. You know where the unity is? Amongst those who are hurt and suffering. If we were to go around this morning and each of us were to be like David in this song, and we were to be honest about our failures and our faults, our sin, if we were to get real with each other, there'd be unity immediately. We would share each other's burdens, and we would understand each other's hardships and failures, and pretty soon we'd be feeling a unity like never before, identifying with each other and loving each other and praying for each other and understanding each other. be a, a circle of, of union. That really takes place not in a circle of winners, but in a circle of losers. There's no clutter amongst the losers. They're purified. You need to be careful this morning about your success, about your winning. Look at the experience of David in the psalm. David had everything. David was king. We learned to watch out for our victories They take our spiritual edge away. Winning can be so very, very dangerous and blinding. The last word is renewing. Clarifying, purifying, and renewing. There in verse 10, we see this plea. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Oh, how we long for renewal, don't we? Every area of our life is corroded and stained. Our marriages need renewal. As Scott Peck observes, we must fall in love again and again. Our our families need renewal. Our churches need renewal. When things become mechanical and rode, and most of all, we need personal renewal a deep conviction of our own sin and poverty before God, followed by a fresh cleansing and then filling with God's Spirit. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. You know what we see in this psalm, what we hear in this message. There is no renewal apart from pain. Pain may come in moral places like it did with David. 
It may come when life is broken or interrupted by an illness in your family. It may come through an economic reversal, an upheaval in our relationships. It may come when we reflect upon the pace of life, which passes so quickly and leaves us a haunting search for meaning. Carl Jung said of all the people over 40 who come to see him, they're looking for a reason to keep on living. They're looking for meaning. We need renewal this morning when we're exhausted. We need renewal this morning when we're uninvolved. We need renewal this morning when we find ourselves in hopeless despair, when it seems as if there is nowhere to turn and no one to whom we can turn, when there's no way out, when we find ourselves like Dave this morning, doomed and trapped at the end of the robe, we look for renewal. One of the benefits of being broken is it allows God to use us. We don't have near the time to go over all the names I have on this page here. I'll just pick a few. Have you ever noticed in Scripture that God only uses broken people? Well, take Jacob, for example, always winning over Esau, his brother, the heel grabber, Jacob. God couldn't use him when he kept outsmarting Esau. Rather, it's when he was approaching Esau, and Esau had the army with which to get revenge. And indeed, he was scared. Jacob was scared. He prays to God, deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. When he finally loses the game of one-upmanship with his brother, his twin, When he has to bow down to Esau seven times in humility, then God uses him. Joseph, when he's arrogant and strutting around like a peacock in his coat of many colors, God can't really use him. When he's saying, I'm having dreams that my brothers are bowing down to me and even you, dad, and even my mother. God can't use Joseph until he finds himself in the darkness of Pharaoh's dungeon. And then he's broken. And God uses him. God can't use Samson as long as he's the most eligible eligible bachelor in Palestine, chasing women all over the Timna hillside. God uses Samson in his end of his life when he's blind and he's broken. He finds himself like a beast of burden, turning the millstone for the Philistines, the people who worship Dagon. God can use him. Oh, we could go through many more in the Old Testament. We could take anybody in the New Testament. Let's pick Peter, the prince of the apostles. When Simon Peter is saying to Jesus, I don't care what the others do. I'll always be faithful to you. I'll always be by your side. Jesus can't use him. But when he says upon the passion of our Christ three times, I don't even know the man cursing and swearing and falling from his Christ, then he is broken Three times, he weeps bitterly in Luke's gospel. And then Jesus restores him. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And then he can be the leader of the apostles, the spokesman for the church. There's a pastor I once knew who said he had one requirement for all of his staff members. I don't have this requirement, but I'd say if you look through a catalog of The biographies of people that God used, he's probably right. He said, and I quote, that every staff member I have has to at some point been broken. 
They have to have something that happened in their life that shattered them and left them at base level, looking for God, depending on God and God's help. On giving the resumes of God's choicest servants, Peter, Paul, Moses, Joshua, he might be just right. Then I think about Jesus up there enthroned with God, co-creator with the Father. In Philippians 2, Jesus left heaven. He left the throne, the right hand of his Father. He humbled himself. He became a servant. He came in the likeness of humankind. He emptied himself, Paul tells us. He went to a thief's death on a cross. Down, down, down. Every move that Jesus made was down. And when finally, when he was at the lowest moment, dying on the cross, that's when God used him the most. God could bring resurrection only after crucifixion. Maybe when you get home today, don't run to the sports section and see who won. Maybe you need to go look and see who lost. Let us pray. Oh God, give us your grace today, your peace today, and your hope today. And God, may we look beyond the blue ribbons to our own hearts. And may we join David this morning in saying we are guilty and we need grace. We're not the winner today. We're the loser. We come desperate, needing, cleansing. Amen.